because he is experienced in ministry. Um, find ourselves sharing stories every once in a while. That um, it's always good to know that you have something in common or something that you experience, others experience as well. And we were talking about uh, the passage, you know, and it's one of those passages that kind of speaks for itself. And we were talking about that pressure when we do a sermon that you got to, you know, have some unique sort of insight. And it, all, it almost feels a little bit like uh, a performance, a little bit like there's an entertainment value. Like, we, you know, we got to keep everyone on the edge of their seat or something, have some sort of profound, profound insight. And sometimes there's just these passages or maybe it's the week you're having or whatever where you're just like, man, I'll, we just need to read this and, you know, just do what it says. And it's that simple. And this is sort of one of those weeks where what Jesus is saying is, is incredibly profound. And um, there's certainly some comments we can make to, you know, clarify or illuminate some things. But it's an incredible passage. Um, it's the second section that we come to in the Sermon on the Mount. And it serves sort of as an introduction, even though last week, um, I guess, felt like an introduction. Last week we had the Beatitudes, which is sort of a vision for what kingdom living looks like. And one of the points I wanted to make last week, um, and is still true this week, is that uh, particularly in um, the evangelical church, we have tended to, when it comes to our walk with God, make it very private and personal, personal holiness. Um, and that's good. Uh, we're going to get to a section on that, actually. How do we practice our faith um, in front of others and the sort of internal attitude that we have? Um, but within uh, churches, many of us grew up knowing um, that's been the extent of it, or most of it. And it's important to remember that this is, uh, this is about a community. This is about that family of God, that place of worship where we go to meet God, the temple. Uh, that is a community. And when Jesus talks about these things, he's talking about how do we live with one another. Um, the Sermon on the Mount. And so it, it is also our, it is our attitude and our personal walk with God, but it's how it interacts with other people is uh, very important for us to realize, that it's not just a personal faith, it's a community faith. Um <clears throat> And we said last week that I'm going to I probably repeat this every week because it's great for January with uh, the goals that we're making. But you will never rise to your goals, but you will always fall to your systems. You will never rise to your goals. You will always fall to your systems. And I believe that part of what Jesus is doing, maybe not completely, is trying to get his disciples to understand a system, a way of being in the world, a way of being in the world. Um, we can be human beings, truly human. How do we live with one another? Not just this idea that we want a better world or a better experience, but how are we going to do it? What will it take? The actions, how will that, what will that look like in practical terms? <clears throat> so uh, I've shared a, I shared often about my experience at a church in Columbus and how unhealthy it was. Um, one of the gifts, I think, of, of the pastor there, um, uh, one of his gifts, which was very powerful but not really kept in check, was this gift of discernment. He had this way of just seeing right inside. 
Um, and the problems came with that church is when he uh, would sort of just abuse that. He would kind of see to the heart of an issue beyond actions and into what was going on in their hearts. And then um, you'd get a phone call or go for a drive or go out for coffee and just get slammed with some sort of uh, um, it's just this. Uh, you just kind of get hammered, beaten up. Um, with how sinful you were, and him seeing like right into you. And what happened for me in that in the wake of that experience is I, I have this a little bit of a fear. I don't think I struggle with anxiety, but every once in a while, if I get a some sort of a what would be close to a panic attack, is when um, there's this fear that uh, I will be discovered. <laughs> that inside is not going to match the outside. Um, and part of that is just the three years I spent there. Um, I remember after leaving that place and going to a place called Crossroads, uh, Lisa and I moved an hour and a half north of Columbus and just moved into the town where the seminary was located. She enrolled at the college, the university, and I was continuing with the seminary. And, uh, I, I had lunch with uh, someone who was going to end up being one of my best friends ever, but I didn't know him that well, and he said, well, let's go out for lunch. And I'm like shaking, because my experience is that if someone's asking you out for lunch, you're going to be found out that your heart isn't really lined up with you know, the good person that you want to project. And of course, that didn't happen, um, and he became a good friend. Years later at that same church, I was asked to be an interim pastor for the youth, um, which was uh, at least three services a week, I think. And my good friend and the senior pastor asked me out for lunch. This is three years later, and I'm showing up at the lunch shaking because <laughs> I don't know what's coming. And this fear that the inside isn't going to show up like the outside looks. And I've heard many people Talk about that. I experienced that a little bit on Wednesday night at the at the at the race and racism and gospel class, uh, which the difference was I was sort of expecting that um, that with this issue of racism and coming from a place of being a, a white male in this nation, part of the fear I have and and a part of me wanting to avoid talking about that is the things that are going on that I don't really realize are going on. And this fear of being found out, or fear of discovering what's going on on the inside. Um, <clears throat> and Jesus sort of addresses that today. He's, he wants to look at the inside. And some of these things that he talks about as he introduces Life in the kingdom, not just life in the kingdom, but getting into the kingdom. That's how it's presented. Getting in. The ticket to get in is that our insides and our outsides need to line up. Um, and not just that. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's this looking inward and making sure that lines up with the outward. There's sort of reining in, um, tightening up, expanding. There's all these sort of things so that... Our life is whole and not compartmentalized. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So we start 
with verse 17 of Matthew 5. And he says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And if we stop right there, the only reason he's saying don't misunderstand why I've come is because he gets misunderstood. Um, I think we misunderstand it at times, and I certainly think back then he was misunderstood, and the Apostle Paul was misunderstood. And this is really important for us to understand as we move on in this first section, because I hear so often that Jesus is some sort of plan B. That the God of the Old Testament is law, the God of the New Testament is grace, and certainly God looks different between the books of Judges and the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but I think it's important to understand that um, the writings about God, what we call our Bible, are filtered through the, the lives and the culture of the people that write them. And so... When Israel is a tribe, God looks a bit more tribalistic. When Israel is a nation, God may look a bit more nationalistic. And when we have someone like Jesus, which is trying to take our understanding beyond just doing the things we should do and calling it good, um, it can look like he's demolishing their traditions. And so he says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets. He groups these together. The law of Moses would be the first five books of our Bible, the Torah. And the writings of the prophets um, largely are interpreting the Torah and how it's lived out. And so he's talking about this whole tradition that these people would have understood, this Jewish tradition. Um, <clears throat> he's saying, don't misunderstand this. This is not plan B. I have come to fulfill this. I have come to be the embodiment of what you have grown up learning the whole time. All the stories and all the interpretations, all those sort of things. I'm telling you now what they mean. And it goes beyond just the rules. He says, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear. He's saying, this is all still good. This is all we, you know, this is still true. I'm just coming to bring some illumination to its depths and its meaning and its purpose for us. If you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This almost sounds like Jesus is saying, here's the least you have to do to get in, okay? <laughs> right? You just do, you know, the least of these, but that's not the way this is. This is a figure of speech. You don't want to be the least of these. You want to be following God's law. You want to be in. We want to be a part of that community. If you ignore the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who obeys God, God's laws, and teaches Others to do the same will be called great. So he tells us. He's going to say, here's, here's what it means to be great in God's kingdom. He says, I warn you. Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter 
the kingdom. So there's two ideas here. Um, one we've talked about a lot, this idea of the kingdom. And what we're going to see is an idea of a community. That Jesus is a king. He's setting the laws for what the kingdom will look like. And here's how life will run. And if we're expecting to live in that kingdom, but not live by the way he wants us to live, it's not going to go well for us. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be frustrating. There's going to be consequences. And this goes back, this isn't new to this sermon, or Jesus. We're going back to Matthew, is leading us back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 17. And in those sections, first John the Baptist says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in 4.17, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so now we get to see what that means. And what it means is life together and what that looks like. And what does a thriving, a flourishing human community look like? What does God's community truly look like? And he talks about righteousness. Now this would have been shocking to them because I think a lot of the people thought that the righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious people were pretty, you know, were a high bar. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to do better even to enter the kingdom. Okay, so we're not talking about anything here for the super religious, the super spiritual, those who are paid, those who are called into ministry. We're all called. We all serve in some way. We're all part of this kingdom. He's talking about everyone. Everyone. Here's the standards. Just to get in. Just to live in this community, to experience it. Here's what it is. And we get a clue about this also. We've also heard about righteousness twice, at least twice, before getting to this point. First is Joseph, Mary's husband, who was talked about as a righteous person. Well, what does that mean? We get to see it very clearly with Joseph. That even though Mary was found to be pregnant, and at first glance could be seen to be unfaithful, or appear to be unfaithful, Joseph, instead of following the letter of the law, decides... To put her away quietly, sounds like she's going to the vet, right? Uh, to divorce her quietly. So as not to draw too much attention. That's righteousness. We already get an idea of where this is going. Like, here's what you do, here's what the law says we do, but Joseph's going to go the extra mile because he cares about her. And he wants what's best for her, even though he may feel betrayed even though he has very heavy feelings at that point. And then Jesus at his baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. John, his cousin, says, you don't need to do this. And he says, no, this is what we are doing. This is the program. This is, I'm, you know, if God is going to come in the flesh and identify with human sinners like ourselves, he's going to be baptized like all the rest of us. And so we see this idea of righteousness is a little bit more. Jesus is defining it for us, and Matthew's defining it for us by tying it to these other stories that he's already told us about Jesus and Joseph. Righteousness is a whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. 
Um, <clears throat> and so he goes in. So he, he launches into several things. And there's many here, and I mentioned last week that all of these sections, these six sections are large. We're not going to dive in deep to all of them. Um, we'll look at some. And there's some with our climate today, our social climate, our political climate, um, with pandemic, mass, and racism. Um, we'll throw in the Me Too movement there and politics with inauguration this week after the events of two weeks ago. Uh, we need to hear what Jesus has to say. He says, you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. It makes sense. He's drawing on the Ten Commandments. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. If you call someone a fool, if you call someone a fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. So he lists three things here, court, judgment, and the fires of hell. And we can try to nitpick those, but I think it's a way of being very general. That there's judgment, that there are consequences to our anger in this community of heaven, this community of God's people. And so again, he's saying, I came here to fulfill this. And what he's trying to say is that, listen, this is not just about not murdering people. It goes deeper than that. We can't harbor anger towards others. And I think that we're living in a time where that's a bit difficult right now. And I don't think there's anything new. I've, I've said this over and over, that it feels like things are worse, but I think that the pandemic, I think that the politics, what's, I think we're seeing stuff come out that's already been there. It's just coming out sideways, probably largely because of all the new rules we're trying to follow just to keep each other well and safe. Um, it's hard. It's hard. These last two weeks have been hard for us. It's been a hard couple weeks. Um, and Jesus is telling me that if I get angry with my girls, it doesn't matter if you have a sharp word. There's something that's breaking down in this community if we harbor that sort of anger. And this mention of judgment and hell and court is all a way of saying that there's consequences. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be felt some way that if we're harboring anger. And again, what he's saying is, I came to fulfill the law. So this is what is behind the do not murder. In other words, you can get away with just not murdering people, but that's not enough. It's not just about keeping the law or the letter of the law. It's about something deeper that needs to happen for this community to flourish, for this to be the temple of God where we go to meet God and obtain forgiveness and healing and love and help for one another. If that's the house, if that's the community we live in, then we can't just get away with keeping the law. And what he's saying here is that, you know, a lot of the religious people you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all that, that's what they're doing. We can get away with saying, you know, I've, I've dotted my I's and I've crossed my T's. And we've all done that. 
And perhaps it's that fear. Maybe other people have that kind of fear like I have, where I just don't want to see that my insides don't line up with my outsides. And so I'm just trying to convince I haven't done this. I haven't acted out. And Jesus is saying, even to get into the kingdom, you've got to address that inner life. If you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar. Be reconciled to that person, and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Here's a gift. I'm taking something that is worth something to me, and I'm giving it to God. That's what worship is. We take our time, we take our thoughts, we take our emotions, we take our homes and our cars and our jobs, and we offer them to God as an act of worship. And Jesus is saying it can't happen if you're not reconciled with someone. That worship, there is a direct connection between your connection with other people in this community and God. And if one's broken, both are going to be broken. So forget, the, you know, forget that outward act of worship because it's not going to mean anything. If we're calling other people a fool. <laughs> you know, and I would... I, I would say our attitudes to those outside the community as well. The way we treat people outside our community. I'm sure Jesus would include some of that as well. How we speak about Pelosi and our president. Matter. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. If that happens, if he gets that far, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. And all that Jesus is simply doing here is saying that there are definite consequences to not caring for this part of your life. It will affect others. It will affect you. It will affect your relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, this is nothing new. (laughs) This is nothing new. This is the way things always meant to be with God's people and Israel and the law, the story. So he goes on. And we get another of that, your insides need to match your outside with this issue of adultery. He says, um, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Another from the Ten Commandments. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust... That's kind of strange. Does anyone have a good eye and a bad? I'm sure there are, but it's kind of strange. I didn't thought of that till just now. But causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger, hand, so what he's saying is that it's better to be maimed and be have a limp. Because the issue, again, is even being a part of the community, being a part of the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is that, you know, better to be with one eye than to not be there at all. 
Your insides, now this is, okay, don't do this literally. <laughs> okay. He's, he's sharing something that's shocking. He's poking the bear. He's trying to shock his audience by his words. He's not saying gouge out your eye. He's not saying if you say something hateful to cut out your tongue. Don't do that. But what he is saying is that if this community is going to happen, we need to take radical steps to take care of those things that will keep us from experiencing it. To preserving our relationship with one another, with our brothers and sisters in this community. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He goes on and talks about divorce. You have heard that the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now, this isn't so much connecting the inner and the outer life. But again, he's talking about this sort of, you can legally get around something that doesn't care for another person and still, in a legal sense, be good. And he's saying, you're not good. In this sense, he's saying this needs, this laws that are current need to be reined in a little bit. That family matters, that people matter, and we can't get around it with the law. This, uh, there's more that's spoken of on divorce, and it really requires more text and more time uh, to unpack this a bit. Um, It talks about adultery, but the term is really vague, actually. It could be a whole host of things that Jesus is talking about. My point being that um, the topic of divorce and what marriage looks like uh, is a bigger one than just this. He talks about vows. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Don't say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, you can turn one, you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is a lie from the evil one. Again, he's using very strong language. And he's basically saying that what has been constructed in this community, Israel, by its leaders, is a way of getting around things. If you tell someone you're going to do something, just do it. Just be honest with people. And let's not worry about loopholes. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say do not resist an evil person if someone slaps you on the right cheek offer the other cheek as well. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat as well. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. 
Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. A couple things about this. This is interesting. First of all, and we see this uh, with our debate in this country about capital punishment. Often this is quoted, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The point of this rule is to prevent escalating violence. It is not some sort of big moral triumph (laughs) to mete out the justice according to the harm that was done to you. You can always extend grace. And we look back at Joseph and Mary again. We all know our heart. (laughs) And if someone does something, we want to do it back and we want to do it worse. The whole reason this is written is so that violence doesn't escalate and get so out of control. So we're not really living up to much if we require an eye for an eye. Jesus saying a part of being this kingdom is that we extend grace. And what's interesting here is he talks about slapping the cheek and and it's interesting because if you were to slap someone, you would use your right hand. For some reason, the right hand is honorable. or you know, I don't know all the social norms. But you would use your right hand and slap someone, which would be on their right cheek. And if you... And, and oftentimes this would be someone from a point of status or privilege or power to someone of lesser status, privilege, or power. And so if you hit them back, things will escalate, and it will go bad for the person who has less privilege, status, and power. If you do nothing, it goes bad. It's it's a social disgrace. And so what Jesus does here is he has the person... uh, Offer their own. They, he, he presents a message where the person retains their dignity, and in a backhanded way—no pun intended—brings shame on the person that has done this. So he says, "Offer your left cheek," which now forces the person to use their left hand, which is a bit dishonorable for some reason. The person maintains their dignity, and it shows up the person. That's beating the other. Same with walking the extra mile. This person's going to ask you, this Roman soldier's going to come around and humiliate you by going the extra mile. He says, uh, or just carrying a mile. He says, go the extra mile. You've retained your dignity and you've shown them how this is wrong. And so it's really a brilliant way to live in this kingdom because you are revealing the problems that are going on in this community while still maintaining your dignity. But it's not easy to do, to take that. As we honor Dr. King tomorrow, that's what the civil, that's a lot, you know, that approach with nonviolence is right in line with this. And it was very powerful, not only for Dr. King, in the civil rights movement, but for people like Gandhi as well. And we come back to uh, something that's very close to what we started. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. 
This is interesting because the Bible actually doesn't say that. The Bible never says hate your enemy. And scholars think that Jesus is pulling together a number of ideas or maybe uh, thoughts, uh, other scholars' thoughts on this idea of how to treat your enemy. He says, but I say love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, in that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. And once again, we come back to this idea of what of a community. He's talking about a family. We saw this with the Beatitudes. They will be called children of God. You'll be two true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. And if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? The assumption is that we will be different. And one of the concerns I have with the church is that we don't, sometimes we don't look very different, particularly in the political climate. God loves Donald Trump in ways that I don't think we even understand. And Pelosi and Biden. I don't think God loves all the things that they are doing, but there is a love. There is a, there is a seeing of the divine image in the other. And Jesus calls us to see that. And he's, he's saying something that almost seems impossible. Love your enemies. Love them. We can't get away with just ignoring them. As tempting as that sounds, love them. I think it was a common saying that, you know, don't do to others what is hateful to yourself in that day. Which is great, because you can get away with not doing anything for the other person. Jesus doesn't say that. Do unto others. You've got to be active. We've got to build this kingdom by the power of God's Spirit. And so with pandemic and mass and no mass and all the stuff on Facebook and social media blowing up and people getting all uptight. And I'm hearing a lot, even in our own congregation, about families that are struggling and divided because you get some super conservative and some liberal. This is why, listen, politics will not save us. And I think that's part of what Jesus is saying, that there is a heart issue that needs to happen within this community because it's not happening out there. We've got some great laws. We've got a great constitution, democracy, all that great stuff. But if we're just following the laws, it will not happen on a deeper level. We can get away with still hating people. And Jesus says you cannot get away with that in this community. You can't. So that's where we need to start. And then, by God's grace, we do live in a country where we're allowed to vote, where we have a voice, and we can begin to change those laws so that they at least are just for everyone. And that's a great gift, and I'm very thankful for that. But just living by the law will not get us there. Having the right people in office will not get us there. There needs to be more. It needs to go deeper. It needs to go farther. It needs to go inward and outward. Um, 
I had several moments this week where I felt like the inward and outward were united. And I want you to think about where that might have happened for you as well. Um, It started Sunday here with the prayers of confession. Uh, It kept going. I was kind of surprised because, we, you know, uh, we... I think we're good about this is my prayer, this is our prayer, and people doing short prayers. We've, we've I think, done better than that, than, than the early years of praying as a group. But it kept going, and it was beautiful. I was very moved by that. And I felt like what I'm experiencing out here, it feels like I'm united. Uh <clears throat> The race class on Wednesday night, I felt united with my inner spirit and what was going on, what I was learning on the outside. That was a heavier feeling, but at least it was true. That I was learning things I felt like, I got to think more about this, which I knew going in. And there's a bit of fear that I've been contributing. How do I do that? And a feeling of just, I'm a crummy person. A feeling of heaviness. But it matched what we were learning and about what is the reality in our world. And it felt true, even though it was a heavy feeling. Um, I got to pray with a family this week who lost a loved one, and that was very powerful. Um, it was one of those situations where you hear these amazing stories about people. This person that's passed, and you're able to cry and laugh and hear these incredible stories about a life that's been lived that affected so many people in so many powerful ways. That was a great gift this week for me. It felt true on the inside and the outside. And then yesterday, a handful of us prayed over Zoom at 2 o'clock for our nation. I think it was was set up for the prayer team. Um, and there was about six of us. And off the top of my head, I just honestly, from, you know, for being true with the inside now, I didn't want to take two o'clock to be praying um, on a Saturday after a busy week. But it was one of the best parts of the week. Um, I'm going to say this. Uh, I was the only guy there. Guys, we need you praying more. Um, both as leaders and as followers. Um, We need to pray. And we need to pray about the hard things. And while this may feel a little bit heavy, the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus says, this is all along what God's kingdom looks like. This is what his people look like. And when we live into it, we're going to feel true. In those hard times, like Wednesday night, in those profound times, like Thursday afternoon, or fr- Thursday afternoon, in the uh, joyful times, like what I heard last Sunday, we're going to feel like true people, and we're going to be able to live that true faith out with other people. And the temptation is that we're just going to do the minimum, call it good. We haven't hurt anyone, so we're good. And Jesus says, "No, you can't just not hurt people. You got to go serve people." And I want North Harbor to be that place. Because we need something different. 
Jesus is saying we're not going to be any different from the pagans and the tax collectors if that doesn't happen, right? Okay. Graham, let's come on up and uh, close this in some song. And then when that's done, I will um, do a blessing and a charge for us. Just a short prayer as Graham comes up. God, uh, Jesus, you gave us a teaching that's really simple. We all understand it as we read it. There might be some little historical details that can be fleshed out for us, but we understand what you're saying. Um, we don't always want to understand it. We want to wish we never heard it. We want to just at a minimum dot our I's, cross our T's, and call it good. But you call us to something more. And it's not so much that you want something from us. It's that you want something for us. And you want something for this world. And you want something for the people who are not part of this community. You want them to be able to see what true life is. What a flourishing humanity looks like. Humble our hearts that we may come to you for the strength and the grace to live this out. Convict us of how we can do that in a time where we feel very shoved around and pushed around by our circumstances and by um, the forces of hate around us and polarization. Um, Give us strength and grace. Uh, to live out this kingdom Uh, in our families here at North Harbor, in our community, in this nation, in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.